Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Jill Myers, and she has a pretty interesting background. She started off in the Air Force. She moved into private industry, and now she works for herself and with her own consultancy. I'm really interested to learn more about her work back when she was in the Air Force, of course, the work that she did in industry and any kind of differences between the two, and then public speaking, of course, since I like talking about public speaking. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Jill. Thank you. It's really great to be here. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, you got it. A bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got your degree in aerospace engineering. What motivated you to get that degree? Well, I had joined the Air Force, which we'll talk about, but... Um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in aviation, even though I had my pilot's license already, which I got when I was 17. And while I was in the Air Force, the first space shuttle went up in 1981. And I thought, wow, that's it. That's really super cool. And I knew I didn't have the grades to be an astronaut. I don't know if it's the same, but back then you had to have a 4.0 to even apply, which I did not. So I decided to look into engineering. So while in the Air Force, I got accepted to a really uh, exclusive program where they picked um, actually only five people around the world to go to school full time to finish your degree because I had started it. So I got my degree actually in astronautical engineering, that side of aerospace from the University of Texas at Austin while I was still active duty. Oh, wow. Is that, is that typical? Because from what I understood when it comes to getting your degree, people typically, either they get the degree and then they join or perhaps they, 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 they go in the military and then they get the degree afterwards, but getting your degree while you're in it, is that, typical, is that something people typically do? No, not at all, not at all. So here, here's how it came about. So I had started college after high school and I quit, which I don't recommend anyone follow that path. Um, and I joined the Air Force at 19. And I was enlisted. And then I, as soon as I got to my first permanent station, after being through the, tra you know, I did seven months of training, eight months of training. And I started immediately taking classes at night. So I was taking, you know, physics and calculus because I knew I wanted to do something technical in aviation, but really hadn't decided. And I was, my second, my second assignment was in Germany at a very small base called Sembach. And we were right near Ramstein Air Base, which is the biggest one in Germany. And the so I started taking classes one at a time. The University of Maryland, at the time, I don't know if they still do, but University of Maryland had an extension campus at Ramstein Air Base. So I was taking you know, these really tough classes one at a time. And the education office person actually called me in one day and they said, you know, you know what, you're killing us with this one class at a time. You'll never finish your degree. Here's this really special program we don't talk about much because they don't accept many people because it costs them a lot of money. So what they do, and it's called the Airman Education Commissioning Program. I don't know if they still have it. This was a long time ago. But what they did is they gave me a list of, of degree fields to pick from. There were only, I think, eight or nine. They were almost all engineering. 
and you picked um, the ones you wanted to apply for and you applied. And it was interesting because I put astronautical engineering as my first choice, you had three slots. I put aeronautical engineering as my second and my third, I put none. And the woman looked at me and she's like, no, 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 you, you can't do that. You have to put electrical engineering for your third one. And I said, well, I don't want to be an electrical engineer. Why? And she's like, well, we're only accepting five people in the world for aero, five people in the world for astro, but we need like 300 electrical engineers. And I said, I don't care. I don't want to be one. So I argued with her. I left it blank. And shockingly, I got it. And I say shockingly because I was lower rank and less time in service than the average person who got accepted. But I had a very, very strong Air Force record and um, got accepted the first time. So yeah, I went to school at UT Austin full time. I was active duty. My job was to go to school. I had a couple other Air Force duties, but obviously pretty light. And the only criteria was, other than going to a school that had the actual degree program, I had to go to a university that had an ROTC program so that there was some Air Force person on campus to sort of look after us. And then one day a week we wore our uniforms the same day as the ROTC folks did. And so I spent the next two and a half years full time, including summers, banging away, finishing out this degree, um, and then went to officers training school after that. So if you hadn't gotten into either astronautical air engineering or aeronautical engineering because you didn't have that third option you just wouldn't have been part of the program at all that's correct <laughs> you really didn't want to be an electrical engineer that bad <laughs> i didn't want to live in circuits and wires thank you very much okay hey you know what you want that's for sure but then you think, pretty determined yeah yeah for no, no question then so you went to school but eventually you get your degree did you go back with were you still in the Air Force after you graduated? Is there some sort of, I guess, requirement that if they're going to let you get this degree, you have to stay for a certain amount of time? Yes, so what, what happened was, it was actually a commissioning program, meaning that you, you applied as an enlisted member of the Air Force, you finished school, you went to officer's training school, which is a 12-week 12, 12 extremely rigorous program in San Antonio at Lackland Air Force Base, and then you come out of it an officer. So my, my life plan and my life plans, I will tell you, never work out. <laughs> my life plan was to get commissioned as a lieutenant and then continue my Air Force career. I loved, loved the Air Force and really wanted to stay in as a, as a lifer, as we call them. But what happened was, this was 1987. I showed up at Lackland Air Force Base to officers training school. The squadrons are broken up into groups of 40 people. And my squadron was me and 39 guys, which I didn't have a problem with at all. In fact, it gave me a room to myself. I didn't have to share a room. It was great. And 10 weeks into the 12 week program, I was doing extremely well. Um, I failed the run test. You know, you have to run a mile and a half every year in the Air Force and you get timed. I failed the run test because I fell and tore all the muscles off my hip bone, which they didn't seem to care about. So. I, felt, I failed the run test and was supposed to retake it. And a couple days later, the commanding officer called me in his office and said, you know, it's, it's, it's really a shame that we're gonna have to ask you to leave. And I looked at him and I said, I don't understand. And he said, well, we're disenrolling you, my favorite word, disenrolling you. And I said, well, I, I, I failed the run test. And he's like, no, you, you failed three things. I said, no, sir, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. 
and they threw me out of OTS on falsified charges because they didn't want a girl in the parade with the 39 guys at graduation. It was a huge scandal. The judge advocate general got involved. It was a mess. Um, they, they literally illegally threw me out of officer training school, making up failures so they could hit that number three. But what happened was they demoted me back to the enlisted rank I was previously. They put me back in the Air Force as enlisted, which would have been okay, except I couldn't be an engineer as an enlisted person. So I had a really great job, actually. They sent me to a really small base in Colorado Springs, and I was working on the GPS Satellite Network Operations Center. But I was devastated at working so hard to get this aerospace engineering degree and not being able to be an engineer. So after another year and a half, I got out of the military very sadly. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing. You know, the military um, treats women better than they used to. Let's just put it that way. There's still issues, obviously, as, as a very big minority in the military. There's a lot of minorities in the military. But I had a colonel that I had worked for in Germany who knew that I was coming to his base and actually had, had asked to meet with me. And when I told him what happened down in Texas, he was, he was extremely angry. I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he said, I've been in the Air Force 27 years and I've never been this angry. And he's the one who started the, the JAG investigation. And in the very end, to be honest with you, Neil, they offered me to go back. They did an investigation. They came back and said, well, you know, uh, you're, you're correct, Jill, about what happened down there. I said, yeah, yes, I know I am. And they said, well, we'd like to offer you to go back. And I said, under what conditions? And he's like, well, number one, you have to start the 12 weeks over. You have to start day one. I was like, all right. And I looked at this lawyer and I said, and let me guess, the gentleman who threw me out is still in charge? And they said, yes. And I looked at them and said, do you really think I would do that? So I declined to go back and then ended up getting out. Mm, that's, a, that's unfortunate. Yeah. And hopefully things are a lot better now than they were, you know, back, back I guess, in the late 80s. I mean, that's quite, 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 quite some time ago. Yes, they are. They are. Yeah. There, there's, you know, a lot of things happened. Um, you know, tailhook in the Navy, of course, caused a, an enormous relook at how the military treats women, especially in aviation. And the other thing I'll say too, just to plug for the Air Force, even 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 after what happened to me, is that today they are of all of the branches of the military. The Air Force has spent more time and money and effort in working toward equality than any other service. They're very proud of it. I actually was very lucky last March to meet in person with the gentleman who at the time was the commandant of the, I think commandant's his title, superintendent maybe, of the Air Force Academy in Colorado. And he's a two-star general who just retired and he laid out for me all of the statistics. And I think at the time they had something like between 30 and 35% women accepted at the academy, you know, which has never happened before. So they're working very hard on women. They're working very hard on people of color. They're working very hard to get minorities um, in equal footing as, as we all should have, have, have had all along. So the Air Force is, is really, really working hard at that. So I'm very proud of that. And then you get out of the, the Air Force under, I guess, not the best of circumstances, and then, but at least you end up going into industry, and now you're able to work as an engineer. How, was your, how did you find working as an engineer in industry? Was it what you expected it to be? You know, I honestly didn't know what to expect coming out of the military. It's quite the shift, even after, I was in for eight years. Even after eight years, it's, it's quite a shift. And I got to tell you, the, the work itself 
um, I enjoyed very, very much because when you're in the military, you operate equipment, you operate aircraft, spacecraft. But when you get on the other side of it and you're building it, it's actually really quite fun. And um, the only challenge I had, as most people do coming out of the military, is you know you get into industry and you wonder why everyone just doesn't know what their job is and doesn't just do it. <laughs> you know, it's it's the lack of structure is very challenging for especially Type A people like me. Um, but you know, it was it was really amazing. I, I was super lucky to get on some really amazing programs early in my career. And then I got into management really quickly. I think I'm told because I have sort of a natural knack, a natural talent for both leadership and management, which I think we all know aren't the same. But you know, my very, very first assignment out of the military I worked on, I can't say a lot about it, but there is a system on the GPS satellite that people don't know is there. And I worked on that for a while. Um, for a very short time. And then I went to Philadelphia, which is actually my original hometown. And I worked for what's now Lockheed Martin. Back then it was GE Aerospace, which got bought by Lockheed many, many years ago in the, in the late 90s. But I got to work for four years on a super highly classified satellite program that was really, really fun. It was one of those security clearances where you can't tell anyone where you work, the building's not marked. You know, I would, I would travel around the world and couldn't tell anybody where I was going. And it was really kind of, you know, clandestine stuff and sort of fun for a while. Um, but I worked at Boeing for a total of six years. I was there twice. I got to work on some super great programs at Boeing. Um, got to work on something which is still my favorite platform ever called AWACS, the Airborne Warning and Control System. It's a a Boeing uh, commercial jet with a huge round, we call it the Rotodome, a big round radar on, radar on top. I worked on that in Germany in the Air Force, and then I got to work on the actual aircraft at Boeing. Um, just got to do, I worked on Air Force One for a while, just got to do some really, really great things. But, you know, being an engineer is, is really fabulous. And I ended up being what's called a systems engineer, which um, if folks listening don't know what that is, you know, there's, there's sort of two... When I mentor folks, I do a lot of mentoring. And when I mentor folks, I tell them there's really two kinds of, of engineering roles you can go into at a company like a Boeing or a Northrop Grumman. And one is what I'll call design engineers, you know, engineers who literally sit and design aircraft, design spacecraft, design components. Um, but systems engineer, which I really fell into by accident, it wasn't really a, a big career field that was discussed much back then in the late 80s, early 90s. But system engineers, I like to call the glue. You know, they're the engineers that make sure everything integrates and works together. So you make sure that the software development team writing the software talks to the people building the hardware so, you know, it works together. Um, and as an integration engineer, you tend to work on the whole aircraft or the whole spacecraft. And for me, that was always much more interesting than working on, you know, a small piece of it or one particular piece of hardware or software. So I fell into the systems engineering role and, and ended up just really loving it. And systems engineers, you know, technically do um, sort of three big phases. They do what's called requirements definition, which is making sure that everyone knows what the customer really wants and can you build it. And then the middle part is integrating and making sure all the different engineering disciplines sort of all work together. And then the last phase is actually managing all the test programs. So. It ended up to be something I think I was really sort of born to do and really loved doing of, of being able to, you know, hold that vision for what the whole aircraft is supposed to perform to do, what the customer wants, 
and then working with the entire development team to make sure that that happens. It was a really, really exciting, exciting career field to be in. Wonderful. So you do this for, for a number of years and just from you talking about it, it seems like you enjoyed it, but at some point you decided to go work for yourself. Was that always part of the plan or is that just something you stumbled into? I stumbled into it and there was a, there was a piece in between that, that was the, the conduit that we'll talk about. So here, here's what happened. Um, I was working in 2017 at Northrop Grumman in San Diego, working on the most incredible aircraft ever built, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Jet. And I had a very senior position. I was one of two managers in charge of development and delivery and support of all of the systems on the F-35 that do communications and navigation. And it was an amazing position, an amazing program. And then in January of 2017, on the cover of a magazine of an organization I've been a member of for about 20 years called Women in Aviation International, WAI, on the cover of WAI magazine was a photograph of an Afghan refugee named Shasta Ways. And the article was about this young woman who was going to leave that May of 2017 and fly solo around the world in a very small single engine aircraft. And Shasta wanted to fly around the world, not to fly around the world and set records, but to have outreach events all around the world to inspire young folks, especially young girls, to be brave and to you know, follow their dreams. She had started a nonprofit organization called Dreams Soar when she was a student at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida. So very long story short, because it's a very long story, I ended up um, being asked by Shasta to lead her outreach team and plan all these outreach events around the world for her. And then ending, ended up being asked to handle the logistics for all of her stops around the world. So I was working with all the international organizations and um, the folks at every single stop, we ended up doing 30, about 30 stops around the world in four and a half months. Um, I ended up planning all of that for her or leading the planning of it, I should say. So I ended up quitting my job at Northrop Grumman and supported Shasta on her flight around the world as a full-time volunteer with no pay because it was, you know, the most amazing experience and the most rewarding thing I've ever done. You know, when, when this young Afghan refugee looks at you and says, you know, will you help me do this and tells you her whole life story and you stop crying, you of course say yes. So Shasta's flight ended up to be almost five months, mainly due to weather. We had three significantly long weather delays. And after her flight ended, I managed her speaking career for a while. And at some point I decided I needed a paycheck again, because again, that was all volunteer. And you know, a lot of people, Neil had told me over the years, you should be a consultant, you should be a consultant. And I never wanted to, because I'm not the kind of person to, go out and successfully find work for myself. I am terrible at sales. I'm terrible at, you know, that, hi, what can I do for you again? You know, that's just never been me. So I never really thought I would succeed as a consultant because I didn't think I could find the work. But after, after Shasta's global flight and because of a lot of the connections I had made over my, at the time, 30 years in the industry, um, people started just calling me and saying, hey, will you help us do this and we'll pay you? And I was like, sure. So I sort of accidentally became a consultant. And um, in my first full year of it, I had six clients, which I think is pretty amazing. And one really large client, which is how I ended up here in Albuquerque, 
Um, I met a guy sort of by, I was living in San Diego for five, I'd been in San Diego for five years. I moved there in 2014. And in the summer of, in the spring of 2018, I was at a meeting and sort of really randomly met this entrepreneur here in Albuquerque, who is a biotech guy. He doesn't know anything about aviation, but he approached me after this meeting and he basically said, I want to start an airline. Will you help me? I was, sure. So I moved here last March after working for him from California for about eight months, but um, the last two years I've spent working for this gentleman, putting a team together, and we were trying to start a commuter airline that would help people fly, not help, help business people fly nonstop from Albuquerque to cities that you cannot fly to nonstop at all. Um, and we were doing really well in getting the company formed and getting the business plan and the marketing plan. And in the end, to be honest, we were unable to get any investors. We were really close to we were very close to signing two investors when COVID-19 hit. And at that point, their you know, portfolios, their existing portfolios became more important, obviously, than adding something new to it. So we unfortunately shut down the, the gig in July. So I am actually currently looking for new consulting opportunities and have a few things in the work. But you know, the joy of consulting, there's good and bad. The joy of consulting to me is it allows me to do more than one thing at a time, which I like, and it allows me to have complete control over my schedule, which is you know, almost priceless. The challenge, of course, is, as I found in July, the income is not steady. So you have to really be able to handle the fact that contracts can end with you know, very little notice, which is what happened to us in July. So there, there's good and bad, there's good and bad. But overall, I really enjoy what I'm doing and uh, trying to support folks really worldwide. I have a couple of potential contracts that are not in the United States at all. So it's pretty exciting. Because the, the work in consulting, as you mentioned, can be kind of feast or famine, is it still some is it still something that you're willing to do long term or would going back and working at a Northrop Grumman or a Boeing or some some big company like that is that something you'd ever consider I am actually currently looking at a couple of full-time positions but I do not want to go back into the defense world um, it is a very challenging environment in the DoD it always has been partly because it is, it's funny because it's similar to what I'm going through now, but you know, in the DOD world, contracts come and go also. So there have been many times when I um, have had to relocate to stay with the company because projects ended. I was actually laid off twice in my career due to programs ending and nothing else being available for me to work on. And I was very, very high up and I was a director level. Both times I was laid off, I was a senior director. So it was kind of a big thing when our whole division shut down. Um, but I really don't wanna go back into defense work because um, the politics of it is challenging. The intermittency of it is challenging. And honestly, having the kind of security clearance I had for so long is exhausting with the requirements that come with having a really high level clearance. And here in Albuquerque, most of the defense work that's done here is related to developing weapons, which I will not work on. I pride myself on, except for the F-35, which obviously is a fighter jet, I have tried to stay away from working on things that directly kill people. I've been pretty successful at that. Um, and here it's a lot of directed energy weapons work, which I just really have no interest in. 
but there are two companies that I've been um, talking to about potentially working for them full time. I still need some schedule flexibility for my public speaking. I need schedule flexibility because I also, in a very large departure from what I ever thought I'd be doing with my life, I actually work part time for a state legislator who is an amazing person and also the only aviation and space law attorney in the entire state of New Mexico. She and I crossed paths about, about two years ago um, and she got elected to her first term as a state official. So I work for her part time, very busy with that. So I can't go back to a nine to five job where I have to be in an office nine to five. But yes, I'm definitely pondering full-time work with doing a little bit of consulting on the side for that stability that is challenging to find with just consulting. Yeah, well, at least nowadays because of COVID, I'm sure a lot of people are considering those type of arrangements too, since a lot of people aren't, aren't, aren't all that keen to go back into an office. So, Very being, true. so being able to work you know, outside the office and then you know, have other things going on is, is certainly more possible now than perhaps before COVID. When it comes, uh, oh please go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna, I was just gonna say, when it comes to the speaking that you do, what type of topics do you like to speak about? Well, it's interesting how I'll tell you how it started, which will explain part of the answer to your question. Um, my first sort of official public speaking gig, I guess, was in 2014. I was working for, I had just moved to California. <clears throat> I was working for a commercial uh, drone or UAS unmanned aerial system company called 3D Robotics. And 3D Robotics founder, a really amaz amazing visionary guy named Chris Anderson, um, led the company from Berkeley, California. And I was down here running the San Diego office, helping run the San Diego office for them. And Chris was not a fan of, of traveling to Southern California. He was sort of a, a Berkeley dude. And he started getting, he was getting requests daily for, for public speaking. So at one point he said, look, I'll make you a deal. You let, I'll do the ones in the Northern half of the state and you do the ones down in, in LA and San Diego. I was like, fine. So I ended up starting to do official public speaking representing the company 3D Robotics and the commercial drone industry in 2014, 2015, and it's really just grown from there. So I ended up with, with really kind of two key message presentations to answer your question. I had one presentation, and this is as of last summer, I had one presentation that was purely how to get an aerospace engineering degree, what it takes to get the degree, and what the career field is like. So. The presentation involved some of my own experiences because again I've worked on a lot of really amazing and very unique and diverse aircraft and even worked on a boat a ship program once shockingly as, as a sonar person um, and the rest of the presentation was more of what's coming in the future for the industry there's so many exciting things going on in aviation and aerospace that people either considering the degree today or currently in university would be looking at for jobs. And then I had a completely separate presentation that was initially at that time called the history and future of women in aviation. And I would walk through the entire history of women in aviation, starting with Baroness de la Roche, who's the first woman to get her pilot's license anywhere in the world back in 1911 in France, all the way through current day. And that presentation also included talking about the Women in Aviation International Organization, talking about the Society of Women Engineers, 
uh, I talked a little bit about Shasta and her accomplishment flying around the world and, and how she inspired so many kids. And then what was interesting, Neil, is mid-summer mid, mid last year, I started being asked to do single keynote speeches that combined both of those topics into one. And I kind of didn't know how to do that well. So I happened to be friends with an amazing woman who is one of the co-founders of the National Geographic Speakers Bureau. So I called her and asked her for help because she also does coaching. Her name's Deb, Deborah Benson. So Deb coached me last year and we spent about six months combining these presentations and creating what she calls my new show. And then she started a new company early this year that I'm now represented by. So she started in a really fascinating speaking firm called Changemaker Talent. And she only lets people she considers really trying to change the world kind of people, change makers, be on her roster. So I'm now represented by Changemaker Talents and have a presentation called Shifting the Balance, Women in Aviation. And that presentation, I have two versions of it. So one is more for adults or non-students. And then I have a separate ending when I am speaking to kids at any grade level of school. So my primary presentation flows through the history of women in aviation and aerospace, talks a lot about current things going on, um, features some really powerful, powerful women in the industry today, does touch on some things going on in the future. And then when I'm speaking to students, I tack on a little bit of that, how to get the aerospace engineering, engineering degree and what it's like. And, but the whole point of the presentation though really is, there's really a couple running themes through it. One is, as the title indicates, shifting the balance, that we really, really need to shift the balance of women in these fields. The statistics today are just truly staggering. Uh, the percentage of female pilots in the world is 6%. Um, and in my presentation, when I go through the different decades, what really makes people's eyes light up when I'm speaking is that the percentage of female pilots in the world in the 1960s was 4%, and now it's 6 that's not a lot of progress. Um, women are only 2% of aircraft mechanics, 16% of our traffic controllers. And in my field, aerospace engineering, it's about 13, 14%. So a lot of my presentation is just stressing the importance that having a, a, a better balance of men and women in these fields is, is really beneficial and why. Um, the second theme that I have through the presentation, which is something I've latched onto a lot in the past eight to 10 years, is it centers around a quote that Sally Ride had. Of course, Sally Ride was the first American female astronaut in space. Sally Ride once said, you can't be what you can't see. And I talk about that a lot in my presentation because when a lot of people ask me, well, why are only 6% of pilots women? My answer is partly because you can't be what you can't see. And if young girls never see a woman in a fighter pilot uniform, in an astronaut suit, um, as a firefighter, you know, pick any one of the male dominated fields. If they don't see women in those roles when they're little, they may not aspire to that. They may not think they can do that. I mean, I'm, I'm a perfect example. So I got my pilot's license when I was 17 in high school and it never occurred to me that I could be a professional pilot because there were no women at the airport I flew out of in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
There were no women students other than me, no instructors, no one in the tower, no one on the ground. And no one ever pulled me aside and said, you know, if you want to be a professional pilot, this is a path for you. I had no mentors. Guidance counselors in school were, ter were terrible. And so I'm sort of an example of that. And so a, a lot of why I do the outreach I do and the public speaking I do, and I'm now president of my third WAI chapter. I started it here in Albuquerque because there wasn't one in New Mexico, is to be able to get women in front of of girls and young women really at any age and just let them know that, as I like to say, the sky is not the limit and they really can aspire to be anything they want to be, especially in aviation and aerospace. And then the other thing I do a lot is to not only inspire them, but to provide them support, whether that's finding them scholarships, finding them mentors. As I mentioned, I, I'm usually mentoring between six and eight women at a time, um, doing anything I can to inspire folks to really get out there and, and really dream big. And, and my presentation is crafted, my public speaking presentation is crafted so that it's not only for people who are interested in these fields, it, it sort of ends on a generic note of you know, using, using aviation and space as an example of how you can aspire to you know, dream big and go after your dreams. Well, when it comes to the, the presentations that you do, do you ever get nervous before them? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? I never get nervous ever. Um, I love public speaking. I'm one of the few people I've ever met who really loves it. And I'm, I'm also very good at it. So I have confidence around it because I get a lot of positive feedback. And I got to tell you, I think it stems from the first time I was thrown in front of a large group was uh, I mentioned earlier that I worked for a company that, that is now Lockheed Martin in Philadelphia very early in my post Air Force career. And I was working at the time on this very, very large, large program. And we were doing a design review. And I was brand new to the company. I'd only been there a few months. And they asked me to be a presenter at this design review. And I'm like, sure. So the day before we were having like a pre meeting, and I said, Oh, by the way, how many people are going to be in the audience? And I'm thinking, you know, 2030 people. They said, Oh, there'll be like 500 people and you'll be on stage with the microphone. I was like, what? So I got tossed into it pretty early in my career and had to sort of sink or swim. But I love public speaking. The bigger the crowd, the more I enjoy it. Um, so I don't really get nervous at all. And a lot, of, a lot of what I do, I think, is just because it comes naturally to me. I think that's partly where the, the lack of nerves comes from. People I know that really, really are afraid of public speaking, they really just don't have that comfort level. Um, and I've coached quite a few people on, on better public speaking. I'm definitely not a professional coach about it. But a lot of it, I think, is, I think a lot of getting around those nerves is just really building up that confidence that you are sending the message you are intending to send, that you are comfortable with what you're saying and how you're saying it, that you're physically comfortable on stage. Um, and that some people I know are afraid of questions they may get asked afterwards that they can't answer. Um, and I always tell people if someone asks you something and you don't know, just say you don't know and you'll look into it or something like that. But I'm very fortunate to really have never had any, any issue with nerves. Well, that, that, that's good to hear. You're certainly in the minority on that one. <laughs> I know. I know. And, then, and then when it comes to, you know, someone 
if they wanted to get better at public speaking, become more effective at it. I know you mentioned becoming more confident with it is helpful. Do you have any other tips that you could offer someone? I think part of it is, is to just practice and whether that's practicing, um, you know, with, with someone in your household, um, you know, I've done that before where, you know, in fact, when, when, when Deb and I put together this new presentation, which she really created the outline for me, um, I dry ran it several times um, with my partner and I would just, you know, read it out loud, go through it, go through it. Um, I would, I now sometimes practice it on Zoom with friends. So I do think practice makes you better. And I also am a big fan of professional coaching. I mean, you know, even as good a speaker as I am, when my friend Deb started coaching me last year, she not only built this presentation for me or with me, really for me. And then I, you know, we worked on it together, but I was very lucky. She lives in Florida and I was very lucky to have the chance to spend a day with her because we ended up going to a film festival together at the same time. And um, she and I literally had just finished the script, like drafting out what we thought was going to be the script for this, this 30 minute long presentation. But we sat in her hotel room and worked on it for like another eight to 10 hours. And a lot of it was her having me go through it out loud in front of her as if she was the audience. And again, even as, as experienced and as good as I am, she gave me a lot of tips on inflection and, you know, emphasis and pauses and when, when to do things slightly differently that I would have never have known that actually gave me even more of a comfort level because when I started implementing the changes she recommended, it like, it felt really good. Like it felt better when I was doing the presentation with the tips from her. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, of getting a public speaking professional coach, even if it's one or two sessions, it doesn't have to be long-term or expensive, you know, get someone who does this for a living to watch you do a presentation and give you, give you tips because it's really, really helpful. The other thing that Deb helped with, which is something I would have never thought of, is she completely changed the visuals of my slides. One of her rules on how to give a really great presentation is where possible, and for me, it's like all but one chart, each of my slides is one image edge to edge. It's just a photo, no caption, no tag, nothing. It's just, it's a photo. And the beauty of that is it keeps the audience much more engaged, especially people hate reading text on slides, which I know back from my days in, in corporate America. But the joy of having just photos or you know, graphics in my, in my presentation is that when I give it to a different audience, it gives me the freedom to change up what I say verbally without having to change the charts. So how long I spend on a chart or what I say when that chart is up, I can do what I want with that with complete freedom if there's nothing printed on the screen. It's actually an amazing, amazing help. And that one little tip I would have never thought of, and it really completely changed the freedom of my presentation. Well, that actually so is a really good tip. There's a free one for everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an excellent tip. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, just so you don't have to make as much changes to your presentations, you know, you don't have to eliminate text, because there's no text to eliminate. That's a great tip from your coach. So yeah. Deb, I mean, uh, Jill, this has been real, <laughs> this has been real great listening to, to your story, starting from the Air Force to, to the present day. How can people get in touch with you? 
Um, the best way is through my website, which is myersarrow.biz. So it's M-E-Y-E-R-S-A-E-R-O.biz. There's a contact me page on there where people can reach out to me. And I would, I'm also on social media. I'm nationally really LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but I try to keep it personal. So I'm on um, LinkedIn, Twitter, and again, not professionally, but Instagram. But as far as, you know, again, me, me as a professional person, uh, so my Twitter handle is Jill Myers 25. No, it's Jill R. Myers. I'm sorry, I keep changing it. I think it's Jill R. Myers. And you can just look me up on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek, is an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering is Teach the Geek to Speak. It's a public speaking course, and it's online. You can go check it out at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Jill. Thanks, Neil.